This is hell. Jesus and Mary Jane, the 80s version of the Beach Boys. Live from the United States where capitalism is the virus. This is hell. Yesterday, Monday, July 19th, England celebrated Freedom Day as announced by the conservative Tory government of Prime Minister Boris Johnson. You might be asking yourself exactly what was Britain declaring their freedom from on this unprecedented first time ever Freedom Day, because that's what I was also asking. It's not like England just fended off some occupier, outside tyrant or conqueror who was oppressing the people and looting their nation. I mean, other than the neoliberal looting everyone is experiencing these days with transnational corporations imposing their will all over the world through globalization and financialization. Because if the Brits somehow figured out how to be free of that exploitation, I could definitely get on board with celebrating that Freedom Day. But England, unfortunately, isn't free from the free market, like all of us. No, the Freedom Day celebrated on Freedom Day was the nation's freedom from the virus, coronavirus, COVID-19, the pandemic. Somehow, England is free of the pathogen that is mutating around the world into a variety of variants that the vaccines may or may not protect us against. A month ago, the UK was averaging around 9,000 cases a day. That number is now over 45,000, a five times increase. As for the vaccine's ability to ward off the new pathogens, or the new variants, I should say, well... The UK's fully vaccinated health minister tested positive for COVID-19 over the weekend. So that can't be good. It all makes you wonder what the Tory government thinks freedom means and is. We'll discuss what freedom is believed to be in today's neoliberal world and the role that freedom plays in spreading the virus and how it contributes to climate change and what freedom can be in a more democratic setting in a few minutes when we have the return of Keir Milburn, who wrote the Novara media opinion piece, Freedom Day, won't set us free. Populist masterstroke? More like unmitigated disaster. Kier is the author of Generation Left, which we discussed with him back in 2019. You can hear that interview now by going to thisishell.com and searching on his last name, Milburn, M-I-L-B-U-R-N. Kier is co-host of Novara Media's hashtag ACFM podcast, where it is described as the home of the weird left Nadia Idol, Jeremy Gilbert, and Keir Milburn examine the links between left-wing politics, culture, music, and experiences of collective joy. Keir works on municipalism, economic democracy, and political economy for the Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung, which is the German word for foundation or endowment. Follow Keir on Twitter at Keir Milburn. That is K-E-I-R-M-I-L-B-U-R-N. And follow the Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung on Twitter at Rosa Lux London. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, cap teeth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Burtz. Producing is Alexander Jerry because Egon Sheely is at the pet hospital with his dog. Anything new by you, Alex? Yeah, I watched a hawk tear open a rabbit and eat it today on the top of a chain link uh, batting cage. 
Oh, really? Really cool. I mean, probably not for the rabbit or the little leaguers who are going to be out there in a couple hours. <laughs> was it over here at Warren Park? Uh, no, it was at the park near my house. Damn, I was hoping I could hear the kids scream from the horror show. It, it depends. You might be able to hear it. <laughs> but this has nothing to do with Egon's dog being at the dog hospital. No, I think that's a, a scheduled visit. I don't think uh, we have any emergencies for uh, Egon's dog. We'll, <laughs> we'll find out. We'll get a report next week on uh, Jupiter. Saturn? It's one of them, too. Is it? I didn't know. 25 years ago, at this very moment, on Saturday, July 20th, 1996, the first episode of This Is Hell aired on Chicago Sound Experiment. WNUR 89.3 FM. Thanks to all of you who have listened and have supported the show. And actually, thanks for supporting. I really do appreciate that. But really, listening and learning with this, us over all these years, that's what's even more important. For 25 years, we have tried to do exactly that. Learn from our guests who are far smarter than your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, and podcast hosts. And I, I don't know about you, but I have learned a lot from this show. My understanding of the world is very different from what it was when we started. Our goal has never been to preach to the choir. We've never been here to reinforce my beliefs or yours in some sort of self-satisfying orgy of confirmation bias. In fact, the best shows are the ones where guests have views and opinions that actually counter my own, that make me reconsider my beliefs and inform me in ways I had never considered in the past. For instance, when we speak with Keir Milburn in a moment, I never connected our understanding of freedom to all of the human-made crises we face today. It surprisingly, uh, you know, never crossed my mind, despite having discussed the meaning of freedom in the past with Astra Taylor when we talked about her movie, What is Democracy?, and the somewhat accompanying book, Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone, and that was back in 2019. And If you're interested in today's topic, you may want to go back and listen to those conversations with Astra, which are available for free at thisishell.com. Just search on Astra Taylor. So thank you to everyone who has joined us and learned along the way from much smarter people than me. This is hell, the only show where the host happily admits he's not as smart as the guests. By the way, my cold is also celebrating its one-month anniversary of its residency in my head, so happy anniversary, sinus infection. But more importantly than any of that, Alex, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? Uh, hold on, where's that orgy of confirmation bias happening? <laughs> it's happening. Uh, this week's question from hell is, where did it all go wrong? Where did it all go wrong? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise, our trucker's caps, our winter beanie, our coffee mugs, our t-shirts, our tote bags, our flash drive, history of the 21st century. You can find all of that right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, you can tweet it to us, you can email it to us, but we must have your answer in by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner, as we do every week following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. This Saturday, July 24th, Jeff Dorchin will be appearing at Carrie's Lounge in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood, 2251 West Devon Avenue, at 2 p.m., shortly after the world broadcast premiere of this week's This Is Hell on WNUR-FM Chicago Sound Experiment. Jeff, Jeff, Jeff will be reading some of his all-time favorite moments of truth. It's pronounced GIF, I believe. <laughs> 
<laughs> accompanied by live music, allegedly. But if you are a musician and aren't doing anything Saturday, email me at chuckatthisishell.com. And who knows, maybe you will be accompanying Jeff. That's this Saturday, July 24th. Jeff Dorchin will be sharing his favorite moments of truth live on stage beginning at 2 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue. I believe Brian Meir, our correspondent from Sao Paulo, will be joining us there as well. This event will only last about an hour, so get there early so you do not miss a moment. And there's a rumor that Pete will be grilling. Not only can you email us, tweet at us, message us via Facebook, you can also send us stuff in the actual mail to This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, 2nd Floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. As our 25th anniversary listener appreciation party and art show, This Is Art, is happening in a couple of months on Saturday, September 18th, again at Carrie's Lounge, delayed by the pandemic. And this party is all about showing our appreciation for you, the listening audience. We have asked that you send us your suggestions for musicians to play during the party downstairs in the bar and for artists to be featured in the gallery opening up here in Second Story Studios Art Gallery which are just outside the door to where I am sitting here in our studio at this moment. We pay musicians well, and all art sales are commission-free, so the artists get 100% of whatever they ask for their work. And yes, it's totally okay to suggest yourself as the musician or artist. And that's where what Brian has done. Brian wrote last week asking how artists go about submitting their art for the show. All you have to do is send us an image of the art, and that's exactly what Brian has done. Brian writes, Hey guys, this isn't quite finished, but you asked for pics as soon as possible, so I'm sending. Here's my butt demon skateboard in progress. Signed, Brian. Yes, Brian is painting a skateboard with an homage to the late great Wesley Willis, whose My Demon is on My Butt tagline ends every show. And Brian, that's a pretty stunning image, and we would be honored to have your skateboard as part of This Is Art. We've also spoken to an artist who found the skeleton of a cat and turned it into a crown, and we're hoping that will also be on display. Send your art or music or your suggestions for artists or musicians to me at chuck at thisishell.com and maybe your art or music will be featured at our 25th anniversary listener appreciation party and art show This Is Art, which is happening again in two months on Saturday, September 18th at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. We also got an email from Daniel who writes, This Is Hell keeps getting better. I think you might be down to the 11th circle by now. Maybe you won't stop until you find Omar Butt in yet another reference to our closing tagline by Wesley Willis. Daniel continues, I think you should interview Isabella Weber about her new book, How China Escaped Shock Therapy. I also have a question for you. I completely agree with Max Isle, who was recently on your show, to discuss his book, A People's Green New Deal, that the two biggest problems with current infrastructure and climate change discourse in the United States are its lack of focus on agriculture and indigenous issues. In the past, I have emphasized this in my phone calls to legislators, but in those types of settings, I like to have a list of narrow and immediately actionable policy goals to advocate. Do you know of anyone focused on U.S. federal legislative politics who has put such a list together. The best thing I've come up with so far is just to point them to the Red Nation website. Also, shout out to Michael Brooks, who died one year ago this Tuesday, July 20th. That's today. I think he exposed a lot of new people to your correspondent in Sao Paulo, Brian Muir. He may have done the same for This Is Hell. I'd be curious to know if you if such a thing is knowable. I'm an example of that pipeline running in the opposite direction. 
finding out about This Is Hell first, then finding out about Michael Brooks through This Is Hell. So thank you for that. Signed, Daniel. First, your guest is intriguing, and we have not done enough China coverage, so thanks. Second, as for a list of narrow and immediately actionable policy goals to advocate when it comes to federal legislation, I have no idea. Red Nation does sound like a place to start. And if listeners know of a place where that kind of list can be found, email us and We'll share that information on air. Finally, as for people hearing about This Is Hell from my live onstage appearance here in Chicago on Michael Brooks' show, I have no idea. But that brings up another interesting question to pose to listeners. As we celebrate 25 years of This Is Hell, how did you find out about the show? Email us your memory of the day you discovered This Is Hell, and we will share it on air. Again, you can email us at chuckatthisishell.com. You can direct message us via Twitter. You can contact us via Facebook. And you just can send stuff in the freaking mail. Coming up, England celebrated Freedom Day yesterday. But why? Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, where did it all go wrong? Where did it all go wrong? Alex will, like I said, have more of those answers. Oh, and he'll be telling us what's happening on the rest of this week's shows. And I have more thoughts on today being our 25th anniversary that I'll be sharing following our guest. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to, this is hell. England celebrated something called Freedom Day yesterday as the conservative government decided it was time to celebrate the end of the COVID-19 pandemic, which is weird because the country is currently facing a massive surge in infections. But in declaring yesterday Freedom Day, what the conservatives may have accidentally done is reveal the many contradictions and shortcomings of their definition of freedom. Returning this to This Is Hell to Talk Freedom, Keir Milburn wrote the Novara Media opinion piece, Freedom Day Won't Set Us Free, Populist Masterstroke, More Like Unmitigated Disaster. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Keir. Hi, Chuck. It's really, really nice to be back, actually. It's great to have you on the show. I really enjoyed our conversation a couple of years ago when we talked about Generation Left on the show, and I'm very, very happy to have you back on, sir. So you write, the government thought that dubbing yesterday, July 19th, the day that England lifts the bulk of its coronavirus legal restrictions, free, Freedom Day, would be a masterstroke, a populist masterstroke. Unsurprisingly, the decision is already backfiring as the implications of removing the bulk of pandemic-related health measures at a time when the only 54% of the country has been fully vaccinated, became abundantly clear indeed by calling it Freedom Day, the Tories have inadvertently shown a light on the contradictions inherent in their specific brand of freedom. To what extent is the Tories' understanding of freedom England's understanding of freedom? How partisan is the concept of freedom in the UK? Yeah, that's a really good question, actually. I think probably um, it's probably less widespread than it is in, in the US, where I think this sort of this, this conception of freedom, which is sort of freedom, a sort of individualized form of freedom in which uh, which you're free if the government hasn't got a law saying you can't do something. And so you'd be more free, the less um, the less laws that you're subject to. I think that is is much more dominant in the US. I think it's dominant in the UK, but I do think there's a there's more of a because there's more of a social democratic history in the UK, there's more of a of a sort of collective idea of freedom. That this idea that that um you know if freedom is to be meaningful, well in, in that case then and we we need we need the sort of infrastructures and the the resources in order to be able to exercise that uh, that freedom. I think that's sort of more of an undercurrent, but it's a really interesting moment at the minute because you can see those two forms of freedom sort of battling each other, if if you know what I mean. 
Do you think that just because we have a two-party system, that undermines our ability to have this kind of discussion and debate? Uh, well, to be honest, I mean, the UK looks like a one-party system at the moment. <laughs> it's, it's, they seem never to lose, no matter how incompetent. They, they're, they're like um, 12 points ahead in the polls at the moment, despite uh, uh, absolute incompetence beyond belief. Uh, like uh, uh, Between like... The official figures are something like 153,000 people have died of of, of COVID-related. Uh, well, have got coronavirus on their death certificate, you know. In that, uh, and if you do excess deaths, which is you know the, the death rate has gone up during this period, it's much more. It's into the 200,000s, etc. It just doesn't seem to have <laughs> impacted on the conservatives. I, I think what it is in the US, the conservative movement is much stronger and is a proper movement. Whereas in the UK, that doesn't tend to be the case. There are many, many right wing actors, but it's not this, it's not a mass movement, the conservative movement in the UK, in this and a sort of mass ideological movement to the extent it is in the US, I think. And so the 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 sort of the ideology of these freedoms, they're not expressed or or, or codified in the same way as they are in the U.S. I'd, I'd put it that way. You write that non, not long after defiantly announcing the decision to open up the country, the Boris Johnson government was forced into some clarifactory backpedaling, announcing its expectation that most mask wearing should, in fact, remain in place only now as a matter of personal and corporate choice rather than as a legal restraint. Is the government then abdicating their responsibility when it comes to safety protocols? To what extent did the government tell British the British population you're on your own on Freedom Day it's been, it's been a very I was listening to you just recounting a little bit of it of the history of the last few weeks uh, when you hear your country explained to another country you do feel a little bit embarrassed about just how bizarre the whole thing is but basically that this this day Freedom Day it was such a ridiculous name it was announced I know and it like Freedom Day is July the 19th we're going to remove all of the COVID restrictions um, but the problem is we're going through a real spiking in, in infections. This Delta virus uh, is really infectious and it's really spreading in, in the UK. It's spreading amongst young people in, in particular. And of course, their, their risk of death by, by COVID is, is much reduced from older populations who are, who are now tended to be, well, to be honest, the, the, the people who are very vulnerable to them, many people in, in old age care homes, etc. They're, they're the ones who died in very large numbers as the, as the pandemic first emerged. Now older people are, are vaccinated. In the UK, people are vaccinated. Older people first down to younger people. So it's mainly younger people who are less vaccinated. And so it's spreading through them. So it's not causing as many deaths. But of course, we know now know that there are all sorts of other, you know, this idea of long COVID that you can have really quite severe uh, symptoms, uh, you know, energy loss, severe reduction in lung capacity, etc. For, for, for a long, long time, whether you're older, whether you're young. So it's really, really spreading. And so uh, people started pointing out, look, if you remove all the legal restrictions, um, you know, what, what's going to happen is, is that this is going to take off even more. So the government then announced, well, we don't expect there to be less mask wearing or less social distancing. We just think um, people will do it um, out of a sense of personal responsibility. So that immediately says to me, well, if nothing changes in our behavior, how is that meaningful freedom? I mean, nothing's happened. It's some sort of metaphysical sort of uh, 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 freedom that we can't actually, doesn't actually influence what we can do. That, well, it, that just seems a contradiction to me. But then what happens is the government then announces um, people who are clinically vulnerable to, 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 to COVID, who are going to have more severe re restrictions, perhaps people who've got 
um, asthma, these sorts of conditions. Well, they're now advising those people to restrict their freedom. So they're saying, please go shopping only during less busy times and not during peak times, etc. Uh, so he said, hang on a minute. So what, what seemed like the removal of legal restrictions actually looks a little bit more like the removal of legal protections from those the, those who need them and uh, you know the what what it does when you when you when you look at this 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 sort of example of a particular type of freedom you realize in fact it relies on a whole series of other unfreedoms because one of the other things that's being being removed or, or pulled down uh, are, are rights for for workers so if you're clinically vulnerable you had a you you, you had uh, the opportunity before to to uh, the expectation was you would be allowed if you were if you were able to you'd be allowed to work from home and therefore decide to remove yourself from from interaction and therefore lower your risk of course uh, now that has been removed and now it's up to the it's up to your boss whether you can exercise that now that to me right that sounds like a removal of of the legal protection to decide you on your own exposure to risk the government is it's, so this freedom depends on how you look at it Chuck. is it the removal of legal restrictions is it the, the removal of legal protections it's looking a lot more like the second to be honest so how much more are you know what we were in the states calling i'm, I'm sure you were in uh, england as well how much more are as, so-called essential workers in danger due to freedom day well, um, yeah. So this this is the other angle. You've got you've got essential workers who are working uh, on transport or who are working in 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 sort of retail, etc. You know that then I say, well, now so before before Freedom Day, hooray, hooray, Freedom Day. Before Freedom Day, you had to wear a mask in in, in a sort of public space, such as on public transport or or in a shop, unless you had a medical exemption. Um, and, you know, it wasn't the medical exemptions weren't checked on in, in particular, but basically the majority of people wore masks. And if people were were not wearing a mask and it looked like it, it was dangerous behavior, they, you could, you know, ask them to leave the shop. Now it's illegal to ask them to, to, to leave the shop. So once again, these workers have lost their legal protections in order the legal protections, which are allowing them to control the level of risk they were exposed to. I think that's one of the one of the. That's one of the the the, um, the contradictions I think that that gets exposed by this, uh, and in fact, so so mask mask wearing and social distance is a really it's a really useful, in a way, the, the COVID pandemic has really exposed this the restrictions the limitations of this sort of idea of individualized freedom. So what the reason government brought in this idea that it's up to up to individuals and and, and companies as well to decide on on mask wearing or social distancing. Uh, the reason they brought that in was to say, well, look, people, oh, this is the argument. It's not a very good argument, but this is it. Uh, people are the ones who should be able to decide on the level of risk, the exposure to risk. So if somebody doesn't want to wear a mask, they can decide to expose themselves to more risk, and it's their personal choice. But the point is, of course, that's not true. Because when we wear a mask, we partly, we partly wear a mask to protect ourselves, but we mainly wear a mask to protect other people. So that if we cough, we have an asymptomatic, we don't know we've got the virus and we cough, well, the virus gets caught in our mask and it doesn't spread to other, other people. Uh, and so, you know, what, what, what seems like um, a, a decision around personal risk is actually a decision about other people's risk, right? And so that's one of the, the interesting things about, about COVID is that uh, it undermines this idea that you know um, that we are 
we are autonomous individuals who can make decisions that don't impact on on other people. If you look at mask wearing, of course, it does impact. What we decide there will impact on everybody else, right? So it's not, if you want to, you can't just make it a, the, that decision as an individual person. That's something that has to be negotiated between everybody. And the ideal way to do that, to do that negotiation about how we interact with each other is through democracy, democratic uh, uh, negotiation, if, if, if you will, um, which is, which is, the, which is why, why, where we start to see perhaps another idea of freedom, what, what we call democratic freedom freedom in fact i'm taking that term from from a book uh, by uh, annaline de Gin, who i think you had on your show actually uh, uh who's, who's written a really great book called freedom and unruly history in which she says she looked through she, she's going back to ancient greece you know and looking at the the conception of freedom that was in ancient athens for instance you know and and she says look when we look back at like 200 years of, of of history of thinking about freedom, you can sort of see two different models about what freedom, what what freedom means. And she says the longest, that really the longest, uh, the, the the conception of freedom with the longest history, you would call democratic freedom. It's that you know, it's the idea. It's not the idea that that we are freer the less government interferes with us. It is we are free if we have control over how we are governed or how we govern ourselves, right? Uh, so it's that it's a conception of freedom in which you're trying to maximize uh, the ability for people to determine what they do in, in their lives. But you can only do that one, one of two ways, either by acting as an individual or by, or by acting uh, 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 democratically and negotiating uh, the, the, the course of our lives, removing restrictions from those, but in a democratic way, if you know what I mean. So what was the what was the intent of Freedom Day? Were they just trying to score political points for the Tories, maybe with their base? And, and did it work? Yeah, well, there's a couple of things. So, so yes, it, it, it was it was meant as a sort of well, it's, it's, it, Freedom Day is quite <laughs> it, it, it's quite a ridiculous term. And it was meant as this populist sort of, you know, um, something to throw to their to their supporters at last we've got freedom back i mean who doesn't want that you know uh, when you look into it a little bit more the timing of it the timing of it is more to do with boris johnson's internal management of his own party the conservative party where you have different wings in the conservative party and he thought that he'd have a rebellion amongst his, his mps if he tried to delay the um the removal of, of restrictions uh, which is what he was getting the medical advice for. The medical advice for, look, we're going through a spike of COVID infections. Infections. There's only 54% of the population who are vaccinated. You leave it three months or a couple of months, two, three months, that vaccination rate will be will be, will be uh, up. Therefore, vaccine, um, infection rates will probably be down. It's more sensible time to do that. He couldn't do that. He couldn't follow the data. He had to follow the date, which was set by, by you know, his internal... Uh, rebellions from inside his the Conservative Party, uh, and, and has it worked? I think I think it's backfired. I think that, that basically people are, people can sort of see um, uh, the, the politics in the decision, if you know what I mean. The politics, that the, the sort of messy politics behind this big shiny word called freedom, if you know what I mean. So, to what extent does freedom, this individualistic freedom, freedom from other people? undermine the freedom to work together collectively. What is the impact of this kind of individual freedom on any sense of community? Because 
you know, any collective or group has more power than any individual, unless, of course, that individual is a billionaire. So you would think that you would want to go with the group that gives you more power. So, so you know, uh, what is the impact of this kind of individual freedom on any sense of community? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I mean, the, the reason that like individual freedom seems attractive is because that's the way our society is set up. All the institutions are all sort of based around that, you know. Um, but but one way to think about how 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 this individualized sense of freedom interrupts a more collective sense of freedom is is, is because that sense of individual freedom it's always it's always based on on hiding how that how your sense of in, individual autonomous freedom uh, relies on the unfreedom of others, other people to pick up the cost, if you like. So like, let's set up an image of a, of a CEO of a company who feels like an autonomous person. I can get all this, these things done and other people can't get these things done. That's because I'm a really free person, et cetera. Sort of a- Ayn Rand sort of um, <laughs> figure, if you want. Um, you know, basically they, they can do those things. They can, they have that, that element of freedom because there's a, they have the resources to do it, because that you know the, the, all these infrastructures are set up to 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 enable that their, their their action, but also just you know on a day to day level, they can do that because somebody else is doing their their washing and tidying their house and cooking their meals. All of those things we have to do, which can be pleasant, but are quite often chores. Let's be honest. Well, if you get somebody else to do them, then you feel an increase in your freedom. But of course. For that person, that's a, it's a reduction on their freedom. They have to go to work and do those things, etc. Of course, it's the same with our with, with our cars and our uh, and our consumer goods. Of course, you know the freedom we feel when we drive down the down the road in our car. You know that is bought at the cost of the unfreedom of the person who has to go to work and do these things. Of course, they need the money, right? But that just brings up, you know, um, economic constraints. You know, the way that we, our lives are channeled in certain directions because of the economic constraints. And if you've got the money, you're not subject to those economic constraints. So so this idea of, of you know, a sovereign individual who's autonomous from everybody else and makes their own mind up, makes their own personal choices, it doesn't affect anyone else, it doesn't depend on anybody else, that has always, always, always been a myth. It's always been a myth. And so what we're seeing at the moment with, with, with COVID, but I think climate change works in the same way. They're both, they're both in fact, there's a, a recent book uh, by Benjamin Bratton is, is, is called uh, um, The Revenge of the Real. And he says, like, climate change and COVID is, is this revenge of reality, puncturing these illusions, puncturing these myths that we've built up. And one of those is that we are autonomous individuals who are not interdependent on anybody else. And, and so what COVID does, it shows that we are interdependent, that our actions impact on others. And in fact, other people's actions impact on us. It's the same, it's the same with climate change. And when, you know, we, we realize that, you know, when we drive down the car, when we drive down the road in our car and feel free, well, those actions are actually impacting other people through carbon emissions going into the atmosphere, you know, climate change developing, and, and therefore, you know, it, extreme weather events being more, more, more common. I mean, you know, we've seen it in the Pacific Northwest. There's been incredible floods in Germany uh, uh, last week. You know, this, this, is, this is climate change. It's happening now, and it's, it's causing huge disruption. You know, if you ask people in the Pacific Northwest when those heat waves and forest fires were going on, how free they felt, they didn't feel very free at all. But these things are related, do you know? So it's like it's, it's almost like reality is 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 coming back and it's puncturing all of these myths, the myths that sustain this um, this individualized conception of freedom. 
One of those myths that I was thinking about while you were responding to the question is this idea of the self-made millionaire. How important Uh is that concept of the self-made millionaire to this idea of individualistic freedom? Because we know that nobody can be self-made, be a self-made millionaire unless they're living in a vacuum by themselves and you can't make a million dollars that way. Yeah, but if you lived in that vacuum, a million dollars would be of no use to you. Exactly. Only a use when just for for mediating relations with others. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how do people make how do people make money? Uh, it, 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 that that could lead us onto it onto onto another uh, uh, area actually, because so, so one of the other things that has happened oh, during the pandemic, of course, right? One of the things the phenomenon we're finding, I think it's it is true in the UK and in the US, is that. Um, Employers who play who are paying very low wages are finding it really hard to fill positions, and that's because, you know, in the U.S., people have got their checks for 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 fourteen hundred dollars, right, which has taken a lot of the economic pressure off people, and so they're being able to make some different choices. It's the same in the in, in the U.K. where for many people they were furloughed so that they they could. Um, stay at home and not work if they if they say you were an electrician etc you had to go to other people's houses that wasn't permitted so the government would pay a proportion of your your wage and people found that uh, 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 found it very annoying i'm sure but also found it as a certain moment of freedom if you like right uh, uh, it sort of reveals the economic compulsion the way that you know when the, the decisions we make about our lives are dependent on all these other things economic compulsion all these sorts of things and then, you know, what's held up at the top of that is this idea of self-made millionaires, um, uh, uh, millionaires or, or the rich as the wealth creators, <laughs> right? Well, uh, that's not true. <laughs> they're, the, they're the wealth um, skimmers, if you like, right? The wealth is, you know, the people who go to work that produces the wealth, that wealth is skimmed off, etc. And And that's become more and more obvious because more and more of, more and more wealth is created via, the extraction of rents of various kinds, rather than investing in production, where where, where workers produce produce things, etc., to get economic growth that way. Instead, the economy is moving much more towards various kinds of of, of extracting rents, rents from buildings, of course, uh, rents from you know when we use Facebook, etc. They extract rents from us in the form of data, which they then sell onto advertisers. These sorts of things. Uh, so in a way, capitalism is getting more and more sort of parasitic in a way, and it's leading to very uh, really big declining, declining growth rates uh, if you compare it to sort of the post-war years, etc. Which is one of these other big problems <laughs> that capitalism is facing in our era of multiple crises. This individual freedom with fewer laws and absent government control would suggest it is the opposite of what are called law and order politics. So one would think that this kind of individual freedom would be antithetical to the far right, as it suggests what they claim anarchism is, and that is a lack of laws and government. So how contradictory is the conservative view of freedom as individual rights, absent government and laws, to the conservative view on the police and policing, which they claim is support for law and order? Yeah, it sounds like a contradiction, isn't it? Really? Yeah. But when you look into it, I don't think it is, because <laughs> in a way, what 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 the right wants laws to do is to enable them and restrict others, right? So the law it should be used to you know enable them to to do what they want, but it should be applied on others to prevent them from doing what they want. And so you you see this in, you know, it, you know the the movement for Black Lives is something that really raised this about how people's experiences of policing is so so different depending on their background 
depending on their race, depending on their wealth, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so so m many people's experience of the police is of of the of the law restricting them, uh, uh, you know, uh, interfering with their lives. Um, so so what what are the what are the things which 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 the present moment has really really stripped away is that this individualized idea of freedom it was always only supposed to apply to some people and not be a universal a universal application you know the movement for black lives in some ways is just a demand that that um, that, that, it, that 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 freedom should apply to everybody that everybody should be subjected to the same sorts of policing or removal of that policing <laughs> if you want to look at look at it that way um so so although it seems contradictory it's not it's like yes we want we we want harsh laws we want harsh laws to apply but not to us to apply to them you uh you, how much are the basic tenets of neoliberalism under threat due to the pandemic because here in the states the media and government want us to get vaccinated and rush back to the normal of neoliberalism and for example burning as much fossil fuel as possible by traveling now that the pandemic is supposedly over for the fully vaccinated and get on with our holiday season so is neo neoliberalism under threat or more so is everyone excited about returning to neoliberalism as soon as possible well uh and people are excited about getting i mean the, the thing is chuck i'd absolutely love a freedom day a meaningful freedom day there's nothing i'd like better than to go to a really good gig or to go dancing with a load of people i'd absolutely love to do that and i want you know we need to get to that position but the problem is when you have a fake freedom day what's going to happen is those those restrictions are going to be placed back again in in a month or so and now the the total length of unfreedom is going it's going to be longer um but as far as like undermining neoliberal ideology, I think what 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 COVID is doing actually, it's it's almost like COVID is a precursor, a sort of like a taste of what's to come from climate change unless we do dramatic changes to prevent climate change reaching its worst and to ameliorate climate change. In, in some ways, the COVID is is an ecological disaster. You know, this sort of what they call zoonotic transfers of of viruses. You know, they come about because of all sorts of ecological and economic uh, uh, impulses, pushing people into forests, mining into forests, bush hunting, all of these sorts of things. Uh, the, the, the climate change, it, it, climate change has the effect of, of making um, uh, animal populations move to new areas because they can no longer survive in the in the old areas. And that pushes people into contact with animals or human populations to animal populations that are not there before. And those are the conditions in which you'd expect more pandemics. But the structure of the pandemic of COVID is a little bit like the structure of 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 um, of climate change more, or, 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 on a bigger scale, if you know what I mean. Uh, partly because, you know, one thing, both of them show that we are actually completely interdependent. They really re reveal how humans are interdependent, not just with other humans, but with other natural systems, other, uh, uh, with animals, other natural systems, etc. It also shows that um, they're both immediately planetary problems, right? So one of the things that we see with COVID at the moment is that, that uh, I think 18 people died of COVID in the UK yesterday, which we would like not to happen but because of vaccinations, those you know that that those number of deaths have dropped up dramatically in the global south. In South Africa, you know, tens of thousands of people are dying. The deaths are really, really, really high because vaccinations haven't reached there. 
But the problem is COVID is not a, a problem you can solve on a national basis because the point is all of these unvaccinated populations where the virus is circulating, that's where variants from uh, of the COVID uh, uh, virus can get developed. They get developed through this unvaccinated populations and eventually we're going to get variants which which escape from our vaccine protections and we're back to square one you it's, it's a problem you have to solve at a global level just as climate changes you have to solve it at a global level that means we have to we have a big task in front of us we have to build the the the, the institutions for for global democratic coordination and planning really there's no way around it we need global planning for scarce resources uh uh, uh and so that is, you know, that is the problem that 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 um, that neoliberalism can't handle. It's climate change. Is the COVID is just the taste of what's to come unless we do something. Climate change is the big, big, big problem. And one of the things we see in the in the UK, it, it, one of the effects of the pandemic seems to have made, seem to have given, seem to have concretized the problem of climate change for younger people in particular. And now they see climate change as the absolute mission of their the, the dominant problem of their lives because they've had a taste of what a crisis a, a crisis which interrupts normal life looks like and they know there's more to come i think we are speaking with Kira milburn who wrote the novara media opinion piece freedom day won't set us free populist masterstroke more like unmitigated disaster you quote uh, youth activist and writer bella lack tweeting the first crisis is ecological, the second is medical, the coronavirus is a secondary symptomatic crisis. We are creating a vulnerable and fragile planet. And as we do so, we become even more vulnerable and fragile too. Our war against nature is inevitably a war against ourselves. Now, again, here in the States, the idea that somehow the pandemic and climate change are related is rarely, if ever, discussed in our mainstream commercial or public media. And when it is, climate change's links to the pandemic that are reported and the pandemic's links to climate change, for that matter, it's always qualified as uncertain, or the headline will be a question suggesting it is very much up to debate and opinion. How does not seeing that link between climate change and the pandemic affect the response to the pandemic, both on the state level and individually? Yeah, it's a really good question again, Chuck. It, um, one, way, one way to think about this is, like, in the US, I think the, the, the wearing of masks and so response to, to, the, to the pandemic is much more politicized in a sort of party political manner than it is in, in the UK. Um, uh, but we can understand that. Uh, we can understand this, the UK government's Freedom Day, Farago, uh, and we can understand, you know, this, this, this sort of like right wing refusal to wear masks. And then, and then beyond that, to sort of deny that COVID uh, is dangerous or that he, perhaps it doesn't even exist or anything like this or to deny that climate change is ha is happening like we've got to understand the relationship between this individualized sense of freedom and this impulse to to what we, what we could call denialism really basically the denial of reality uh, 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 and the, the way to understand that is is because people's experiences of this individualized freedom you know they they, they they, they actually exist you know when people people probably do feel free we've all we've all driven down the down a motorway with, with the you know the windows open the, the air streaming in and felt free i'm sure right and so to be told that like actually this your sense of that this this lived sense of freedom in a way is actually is actually causing all of these problems for other people for yourself all around the world and we need to think differently about that that's an uncomfortable thought 
right? And that sort of discomfort from having that lived sense of freedom made into a problem, I think that's what underlies this sort of denialism and perhaps all of the sort of culture war narratives and myths that that, that, that circulate around that, do you know what I mean? Um, and I think that's how it how it impacts. Perhaps we have to we have to we have to think about this problem of denialism uh, in a couple of different ways. That like I, I, there's sort of like a sincere denialism, if you want, right, where people just feel uncomfortable and so they steer away from and sort of refuse certain ideas, which will which will uh, uh, discomfort them and, and problematize their freedom. Then you've got the more what you might think of the cynical denialism of people who are purposely trying to introduce distrust, who are purposely trying to 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 to, to gain pop political gain from this level of denialism. Like the thing that's really on my mind at the moment is in Brazil, where you have one of these key denialists, Bolsonaro, who is this, uh, this Trump-like figure, I I president of Brazil. You know, he's going to lose the next uh, the next election to Lula. There's no doubt about it. The gap between him is like this points the lectures not to next year now they're trying to rush through these huge amounts of laws and infrastructure building to basically destroy the amazon uh, it's a very scary thing because the the amazon is so big it produces its own weather it produces the rain that a rainforest needs but if you reduce once it shrinks to a certain size the amazon won't be able to to, to produce that weather therefore it will die off in a in dramatic fashion that's going to reach a tipping point we don't know how soon that tipping point is and people are worried that that tipping point could be met before bolsonaro was thrown out of power um next year it's one to really keep an eye on i think it's really quite worrying how much do you think that understanding of freedom whether it's a democratic freedom or the individualistic freedom how much do you think that is the current political line of demarcation not only in the uk but globally are we drawing lines based on our understanding of freedom do you know what? I, 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 think, I think that's right. I think it is two versions of freedom. One version of freedom which has sort of held sway for a long time. So Annaline de Gin, she, when, when, she, when she says looks at these two versions of freedom, she says, the long, this democratic freedom, that was along for a long time. And it was only after the sort of democratic revolutions of the 18th century, the US Revolution, the French Revolution, the Haitian Revolution, we should add, actually to that, you know, it was in reaction to that, the elites of the world at that point, they created this individualized conception of freedom as a protection, a way to protect their, protect their property from the poor, basically. That's what they thought democracy would lead to. And so this, this individualized idea of freedom, we can, like the best image of it is, is to think of a rich person with a big pile of gold who wants to build the walls around that gold to, to keep other people out to protect their property. That's what the walls of individualized freedom are. We can think of it uh, in that way. So that's one form of freedom. But th th I think, um, especially among younger people, you know, last time we talked, we were talking about the, my book, Generation Left, which is all about uh, that there may be a new generation emerging, which, which has sort of more common sensely, in which equality, equality between races, equality between sexualities, etc. It's much more common sense. I think that is emerging. As in, in the article I mentioned, um, the England football team who, who, who were playing in the European Championships recently, and there was a big scandal. They, they basically, the England football team had decided they were going to take the knee to copy Colin, Colin Kaepernick's uh, gesture, to take the knee in, a, in an anti-racist protest just for a few seconds before the kickoff of every match. And when they started, before the, when they started doing that, before the, before the championship started, some England fans started booing. 
and there was a big scandal about it. This is outrageous booing. The, the, the Boris Johnson government, they said, oh, it's fine to boo, right? And in fact, the booers are the, are, are the, are the good guys. And this England football team, these are the, the woke mob, and all, you must know all of these horrendous terms. But when you think about it, it's just that England football team is made up of young, working-class kids. That is the common sense, that, that, that innate sense of equality is the common sense of that generation. And that leads to, that automatically leads to this, this universalized democratic sense of freedom, which actually needs people to be vaguely, broadly uh, uh, equal in order for that to have any, any, any sense, I think. So I think there are two senses of freedom battling for the future of society. And when we look at climate change, you know, the future of human race depends on one of those forms of freedom, democratic freedom, winning that that race over the next 10 or 20 years. And you write that we can't just assume that we're freely choosing agents. Take the world of work in which we surrender control of our activities to bosses who are driven by the inhuman logic of capital accumulation, like you were mentioning before. And you add the often obscured unfreedom. This often obscured unfreedom has been brought to the fore by the coronavirus pandemic, given the obvious limitations that work presents to our ability to decide on our exposure to the virus and the four-day work campaign tweeted work is the greatest form of unfreedom we experience on a day-to-day basis let's reduce the extent to which it dominates our lives let's build a world where we work to live rather than live to work now this is the idea that democracy stops at the workshop door much like it is said Mm -hmm. that democracy stops at the schoolhouse door is the unfreedom of the workplace undemocratic and are those who believe in the individualistic concept of freedom demanding more democracy, if not worker-run and owned businesses, as well as more power for students in school. Do those who believe in individual freedom want a world where we work to live rather than live to work? Yes, that is a really good connection to to make. Uh, You know, as far as I'm concerned, we need to complete the democratic revolutions of the 18th century, but we need to complete them for everybody and in every part of life. So that means democracy should reign in the economy. Right. That's and that is one of the lessons that has to follow from these sorts of crises, such as COVID and the climate crisis. Right. We have to have some level of democratic planning around the use of resources, some level of democratic control within within firms, you know, workers co-ops, etc., or just to democratize the firm so that workers have more of a say. There's all sorts of steps you could you could go go to that. And I think that is also one of the one of the emerging common sense uh, part of the emerging common sense politics of, of a sort of younger left generation. It's not as wide uh, as a sort of anti-racism and anti, anti-homophobia, for instance. But you certainly see, if you, if you look at the four-day week campaign, they do surveys and young people are, are so much more uh, uh, pro the reduction of the working week and see that as freedom than, than older people. And in part, I think it's because working conditions and the kinds of jobs available to, to young people um, uh, uh, are basically worse than when, than when their, their parents were, were, were at work. Okay, working on a factory floor is not um, is hard, grueling, destructive to your body, etc. Uh, but you know, in the UK in the 1970s, people who worked on it on that you had very strong unions. You know, you had uh, the, the amount of pay. You know the amount of of the, of the national income that went to pay was hugely more than it is now, where hugely more of the national income goes to goes to profits rather than than to wages. So I think that this this experience of of worse work in many ways among the young is sort of driving this idea that 
that that you don't find freedom through your work you find freedom well through control over your life and so the more control you have over your work the more freer it is uh, but perhaps you also need to reduce the amount of, of of time dedicated to work so that we have more free time beyond that is individualistic freedom then <clears throat> denialism for any responsibility or contribution or complicity in any of the world's problems, including climate change, racial exploitation and violence, inequality and poverty is individualistic freedom, simply an unwillingness to take responsibility for your actions, because that, again, counters right wing ideas of people just aren't responsible enough. Yeah, yes. It's, yeah, it's a really good way to put it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, one way to one way to think about like what is this what is this emerging democratic sort of sense of freedom which is just a completion of a much longer tradition of freedom 2500 year old uh, uh, sense or tradition uh, of freedom you know and in a way it is just about about us taking responsibility for the impacts of our actions basically it, you know but but that's in some ways it's a, it's a tricky argument a tricky argument to make because of course there is a, there's an idea that there is a sense of neoliberal responsabilization, right? In which you're made to feel responsible for things that you have no control over. So if you're unemployed because of the state of the economy, you're made to feel that, that it's your responsibility that you're unemployed. Or perhaps you, you have an anxiety disorder and it's like it's your responsibility to do it. Well, of course, you know, uh, uh, it, it can't just be that, that people's um, uh, fecklessness goes up during economic crisis. It is, you know, we are not responsible for all of these things that we're made to be, feel responsible for. We're actually not responsible for them. And then, you know, the, the, all of the, 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 the things that our actions actually do result in are, are hidden from us, right, by things such as the market. And the market is, what, is, a, is a place to sort of distance us from the consequences of our actions, if, if you know what I mean. You do something, we buy a good here, but we don't see, you know, the, the, the unfreedom that's gone on to both produce that, the carbon that's been promoted, produced and put into the atmosphere to move those goods around society. So one way we want, we want the reduction on this unfair sense of individualized freedom and then the expansion of, our, uh, of, our, the, of the realm of like collective responsibility so we can identify what we really have control over and therefore uh, work out a way to uh, negotiate uh, in, uh, th those responsibilities in a democratic manner, I think. And another contradiction I just want to point out, author and climate change activist, past guest on our show, Bill McKibben, recently wrote an opinion piece and tweeted about it saying that climate change is now producing more refugees than war. Mm. So what explains why those who do oppose migration and immigration, why are they not adamantly anti-climate change? Yeah, I'm, uh, uh, yes. So, so that we can, we can, like, you know, we, that, that sense of denialism linked to a sort of right wing politics, which is also anti migrant, etc. You, you can see how it all fits together, really, because, of course, it's easier to it's easier to 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 deny that these people, these people who are m migrating, who are trying to cross the Mediterranean uh, to get to Europe from Africa, etc. You know, uh, something like ten thousand people have died trying to cross the Mediterranean over the last five years. Uh, you know, you you can deny that their rights to freedom, right? That's easier to do that by demonising those people than to accept that our own actions might actually be driving migration. You're right that that, that you know, as climate change gets more severe, you know, parts of the popular, parts of the of the of the earth, or larger, larger parts of the earth are going to are going to become 
very, very difficult to inhabit for, for human, humankind. And so we're already seeing sort of migration uh, being driven by climate change. Many people have pointed to uh, the Syrian civil war as, as something which was, was provoked by a spike in food prices caused by the effects of climate change, the first climate change war. That drove huge populations of Syrian people to, to leave the country to try to find a better life elsewhere. Uh, and so we can either get, we can either, there's two futures facing us. One of them is this horrible negative sort of feedback loop in which, you know, we have climate change increases, therefore we have more wars and, and more displacement of populations, which means countries in, 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 citizens in countries such as the UK and US might respond in a sort of, you know, in, in an anti-migrant thing. You know, and that's a negative feedback loop. Or you can have a positive feedback loop where we try to deal with the with climate change in a sort of democratic manner. We start to increase our capacities to act in the world uh, and, and, and to recognise our connectedness with other people. And that means that dealing with climate change can lead us, in fact, to a much better world than, than we had pre-climate change. We've got sort of two futures in front of us, one of them linked to a very individualised sense of freedom, one linked to a more democratic, collectivised sense of freedom. I think those are the futures in front of us. One of them seems very unattractive to me, and one of them seems quite attractive indeed. One more question for you, Kier. We have had the honour of speaking with Kier Milburn, who wrote the Novara Media opinion piece, Freedom Day Won't Set Us Free, Populist Masterstroke, More Like Unmitigated Disaster. Kier is the author of Generation Left, which we discussed with him back in 2019. You can find that interview at thisishell.com when searching on his last name, Milburn, M-I-L-B-U-R-N. Kier is co-host of Novara Media's hashtag ACFM podcast, and you can follow Kier on Twitter, at Kier Milburn. One last question for you, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. You write, the separation of belief and action when it comes to contributing to climate change can be made sense of through looking at the institutions and infrastructures that organize our lives. Built around an individualistic logic of personal choice, most operate as though the climate crisis isn't happening. The stock market, for example, assumes that trillions of pounds worth of carbon reserves will be extracted and burnt, yet doing so will destroy human civilization. With this kind of logic coming to structure our everyday lives, it produces a sense of unreality when it comes to the most pressing political problems of our time. This is how we are trained to adopt the individualistic concept of freedom. So is personal choice destroying human civilization? Is the real threat to human civilization, climate change, the pandemic, or personal choice? That is a, that is a tricky question. But, and of course, the, the thing we do with tricky, tricky questions is we pick it apart. <laughs> and so we have to think about what, what we mean by personal choice. And so like our personal choices are structured by the infrastructures that underlie us and the institutions we interact to. Let, let's, let's take it in a really obvious way. It's much better for the environment if I take a train than if I take a plane, right? It's much better for the environment. And, and, and I will, uh, but of course, the decision whether that my personal choice about whether to take a train or to take a plane, well, it depends whether the train line is there, whether that train runs quickly enough, whether it's, whether it's not, it's cheaper uh, or at the same price as a plane ticket. Crazily, it's much cheaper to fly, for me to fly from the UK to Barcelona. Not actually allowed at the moment because of COVID. But when, when we're allowed again, much cheaper for me to fly uh, to, from from Leeds in England over to into Barcelona in Spain than to take the train. And and the, the train could take take something like um, 
I think it takes like 36 hours. So that's the choice. One of them, the infrastructure is not there. So the choice is really an inconvenient and quite expensive. The other one, the infrastructure is there. It's cheap, uh, it's convenient, but it will contribute to the end of the world. It's a personal choice is not something which just depends on us as a person. It depends on the infrastructure, the institutions, the society and the logic that structures all of those institutions together. So it may be personal choice, but the only way out of that is to, is to create real, real choice by removing the, 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 the financial and economic constraints on our actions, by removing the infrastructures that, that steer our lives to, to act as though we don't think climate change has happened, even though we can see it outside our windows at, the very mo- at this very moment. Kier, thank you so much for being back on the show. I want to make certain that it isn't two years between your next visit and we'll be bugging you in the very near future to have you back on the show. It's always great speaking with you, sir. I really enjoyed that, Chuck. Uh, Yeah, hopefully speak soon. All right, take Take care, sir. This is not (laughs) the media. This is hell. What's with my tongue this morning? Uh, if you liked our conversation with Cure, please show your support by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Alex, please remind our listening audience, what is this week's question from hell? And tell us how our listeners are responding. This week's question from hell is, where did it all go wrong? Where did it all go wrong? Jim P says, <clears throat> cheese whiz. Bradley R. That says, is a location, by the way. <laughs> Bradley R. Says, I think where means when in this circumstance. I think so, too. Uh, Bradley R. says, nothing is wrong. The universe is unfolding the only way it can. Now get back to work. <laughs> Kim G. says, at the crossroads, Fabio L. said, when my parents conceived, where did it all go wrong? Where did it all go wrong? Aaron D. says, when the first great civilizations and megafauna were wiped out in a cataclysmic event 12,500 12, years ago, Chris H. says, civilization has been a tragedy for the masses that our ruling classes mean to end them all this decade doesn't change that fact. One scintilla. Where did it all go wrong? Borky B. says, that time Napoleon had the bright idea to invade Russia in the winter. (laughs) Joel G. says, homo erectus. Matt H. says, leaving the Stone Age was a big mistake. And uh, let's end with Todd saying, mom and dad. (laughs) A lot of people like playing the conception game where they find their birth date and then go back nine months and find out what their parents were celebrating. Mine were drunk off their ass on New Year's Eve. 25 years ago today, right now, we were airing the very first episode of This Is Hell on Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM. We were not podcasting yet. That wouldn't happen until September 15th, 2001. When we recorded our very first content that was posted online, which included the very first live interview with Noam Chomsky following 9-11, and I want to apologize for the number of times the word very came up in those two sentences. That was so long ago, they weren't even calling it podcasting yet. We were definitely not live streaming yet, as WNUR didn't have that capability until several years after we started podcasting. So we started NUR as a summer fill-in to provide community service and public affairs programming as the station couldn't find anybody interested in doing so, and the FCC requires it. There was actual fear at the station that they may have lost their license over the issue, although I always thought that concern was extremely over-exaggerated. However, the general manager at the time thanked me profusely for filling the Saturday morning slot set aside for community programming. Having been away from radio for nearly a decade, I had plenty of time to think about the kind of radio show I wanted to do. The idea was basically to do a talk show that is unlike any other by focusing not on celebrities, even local ones, but instead featuring long-form, non-soundbite interviews about subjects the media was either misrepresenting or ignoring entirely. I didn't have a producer or board operator at the time, so I was 
left to produce the show by myself, and uh, getting a guest on the line to do a phone interview was <laughs> logistically problematic. I would actually tell the listeners to wait as I dialed up a guest. Instead, I would drag my friends in here, and we would go, you know, goof on the news, joke around for about an hour or two. That might sound familiar to many of you who never heard those shows because that's what most podcasts are today, a bunch of friends hanging out and sharing their genius with the audience. When the students came back that fall, we became and we uh, became an emergency substitute if needed, and we were needed because community service and public affairs broadcasting is not as sexy as it sounds, and it sounds very not sexy. By the time the summer rolled around again, we were back in our regular Saturday morning slot. Our tagline became fueled by caffeine, powered by an accordion. This is hell, and yes, we had an accordion player who would accompany me when I read the news. That accordionist is now a labor and disability rights activist in Austin, Texas. We had a piano player, too. He ended up being a cantor in one of the wealthiest suburbs in the United States. We brought in Jeff Dorchin to do the moment of truth around that time. Jeff had been reading monologues for what was then the brand new This American Life, hosted by Ira Glass. We also added a producer, Andrew Duncan, the original guitarist for the band OK Go. Following the summer of 97, we were given a a freeform slot on Sunday mornings for two hours beginning at 6 a.m. right before the gospel show. We would end each show with From Hell to Heaven in Only Minutes, and the gospel show loved that tagline. As none of us wanted to come up that early on a Sunday morning, we had to record the show the day prior on Saturday morning. On Sunday, I would ride my bike up here, up to the studio at NUR, and play a DAT or digital audio tape, which was the fashion of the time. It wasn't until June or yeah, June of 1998 that we permanently settled into our live Saturday morning slot, which was originally only an hour, but by the fall it had expanded to two and then three, finally becoming a four-hour show in early 1999, which is what we've been ever since. We're not we were not always called This Is Hell. Yes, it was the first name we ever gave the show, but we were told by people in the industry that not only did the name contain a profanity, but Christians, especially the evangelical fundamentalist right-wing type that are very unchristian, would be upset. We were told we would be canceled over our name way before canceling was a thing. We tried the American Breakfast Hour as a name. We tried Truck as a name for the show because a neighborhood kid couldn't pronounce Chuck. So he called me Truck, and then all of his friends did too. We tried I Love Mertz as a riff on I Love Lucy, a show I have always hated that featured the Mertz family who lived down the hall. None of the other names ever lasted more than an episode or three, and we always came back to This Is Hell, a name I came up with for the show years before we ever aired our first episode, a name I came up with while I was tripping balls. We have had a lot of people working on the show over the years, mostly Northwestern University students, as that's where the station is. That means they have all moved on to bigger and better things because... They were in Northwestern University. One's a doctor, another's a celebrated sociologist, some are teachers in New York City, another went on to work at Chapo Trap House. Meanwhile, as I watch the revolving door of producers from my side of the soundproof glass and all of them finding far more success elsewhere, I stayed here doing this as hell every Saturday morning, every week for four straight hours, completely uninterrupted by anything, no commercials, nothing. Doing four straight hours of talk radio 
is freaking exhausting, especially when it's four consecutive hours of sheer hell covering the stories mainstream media does not want to cover, because if they did, they would be bullied with claims of being anti or even un-American. And with that, the mainstream commercial media will not uh, put as it would affect their bottom line. As we have no bottom line, there was and is nothing for us to fear. After 23 years on the air, we finally moved to a time slot in a studio that was far more convenient. The time slot, as you know, is 10 a.m. Chicago time every day, and it's far more convenient because the studio is now a block from my house instead of eight miles away from Northwestern University's campus. We also, you know, that's where it is. Northwestern University campus, eight miles away. Far too far for me to go every Saturday morning to go do a show. We also started asking listeners for their support for the first time ever after acquiring a huge debt to years of paying for everything ourselves without earning a freaking penny. And now, here we are, after 25 years of airing on WNUR, in our own studio with your support, and we simply cannot thank you enough for all your contributions to This Is Hell. Thank you for everything you do for This Is Hell, because without you, we got nothing. For 25 years, we've been offering the news that scares the news, and it's all because of your contributions, including guest and topic suggestions, which are fantastic. And over the next 25 years, we hope to do an even better job of manufacturing dissent if the show doesn't kill me first and i can guarantee you it will on friday's patreon podcast i'll be telling you more about the history of the show stories about being threatened by an alderman about a local group that would not do the show unless we gave them an hour of the show every week the activist who told us to never discuss a certain topic or we would likely be kicked off the air and how we then talked about that subject ad nauseum the time we let someone into the station who stole a whole bunch of computers the other time someone came in and turned off the power to the entire building knocking the station off air right before we were supposed to go on air. And we'll share the only profanity of the seven dirty words that you are not supposed to say on the radio that has actually led to a complaint, and you'll never guess which word it was. Nope, not that one. No, not that one either. But to hear all that, you will have to subscribe to our weekly Friday Patreon podcast, which streams live at 10 a.m. and is podcast shortly after at the same place, patreon.com slash thisishell. Alex, do we know who's on tomorrow's live one-hour show at 10 a.m. Chicago time right here at thisishell.com? It's always a bad sign when you go to write a collective and get one person to write your back. <laughs> so uh, nothing yet. Wednesday, I uh, got an email to you, so take a look at that. But uh, Thursday, I just booked Avi Gorelick to talk about his hypocrite reader piece, The Violence is the Point. Of course, Jeff Dorchin will be delivering a moment of truth on Thursday as well. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Alexander Jerry. Thanks to Kier Milburn, our guest, and thanks to Ale- Alexander Jerry for not only running the board, but for booking today guest pretending to know what i'm talking about since 1996 this is hell my demon is on my butt no. uh. my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller and my demon tries to knock me down and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride thank you for listening to this is hell for more interview hell and to support the show Visit thisishell.com.